0: By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Hello, and welcome to the Quillette podcast. My name's Toby Young, and I'm an associate editor. I recently spoke with Beau Weingard, an assistant professor of psychology at Marietta College in Ohio. He's also a frequent contributor to Quillette. We talked about three of his pieces, on the reality of race and the abhorrence of racism, the preachers of the great Awakening, and centrism, a moderate manifesto some of which he co-wrote with Brian Boutwell and his brother Ben. We were speaking via Skype, so apologies in advance for occasional lapses in sound quality. Um, so, OK, let's let, now let's talk about that article on the reality of race and the abhorrence of racism. Um, and that, that was by you and Brian um, and your brother Ben.
1: As I recall, I mean, the main point is just you know, the arguments that race is a social construction are rather weak. And in fact, race reflects an underlying biological reality. But importantly, one doesn't have to deny the reality of race to um, espouse an anti-racist message. And And actually, we even argued that it's dangerous to tie Uh, I guess, a cosmopolitan message to an empirical fact, because it suggests that if we found out the fact that it's tied to was wrong, then the message
0: would be wrong. The title you gave to that piece... um, That was Brian's title. Oh, Brian's title, okay. But (laughs) that title, I suppose, might lead some people to think that you, as one of the authors authors of that piece, um, are a race realist. Does race realism, as you understand it, Uh, simply mean that you don't believe race is a social construct even though you could be completely agnostic about whether say black white IQ differences are genetically influenced or do you think race realist means not only do you think that race is not a social construct but that group differences between races are in part biologically influenced
1: yeah that's an excellent question I, I guess I when I use the term, I don't. I guess I should say I don't actually use the term. It's a term that seems as though it's used more by the Jared Taylors of the world, and I don't mean it in that sense. But if I were to use the term, I would just mean that there are underlying genetic differences, and likely there are some phenotypic differences that stem from those differences. But I don't know what all of the differences are. Talking about IQ. I think one could be totally agnostic about the cause of the IQ differences and still accept that, yeah, there is some reality, some biological slash genetic reality to raise.
0: Okay. So, so I suppose there's a sort of, um, you could be um, a sort of soft race realist or a hard race realist. And a soft right realist might just accept that racial distinctions and racial uh, taxonomies aren't completely arbitrary. Um uh, but do have some basis in reality, but remain agnostic as to whether psychological differences between races have some genetic basis, whereas a hard race realist would also think that those differences do have some genetic basis and would you describe yourself as a soft race realist or a hard race realist
1: <laughs> well but by the definition you forwarded, I would, I, I would have to call myself a hard race realist, although I'm not sure I like that term. But I mean, there's no reason to think that um, the genes that select for human brains are any different from the genes that select for say human skin color or hair texture. So to me it would be remarkable if there weren't some psychological differences among racial groups that were genetically caused at least partially.
0: You say that a lot of the objections to race realism seem to be rooted in this belief that if you can categorise different races in roughly the way that they have been done conventionally for hundreds of years, Mm -hmm. and you think that some of the differences between racial groups are genetically influenced... That that will somehow undermine our commitment to a sort of anti-racist agenda. Do you want to just briefly flesh out um, uh, that argument that the one isn't that that, that that equal treatment isn't contingent upon people being identical? Right. I mean, in fact,
1: like we all understand that even if you just look within a race, that there are massive disparities in all kinds of traits, right? And that doesn't stop us from treating people equally under the law, the same thing should apply to racial variation. Um, I do think, I think one problem with the race topic is that a lot of the people who are the most vocal about quote-unquote race realism do have what I would consider unsavory political beliefs, and therefore I don't think it's completely ridiculous that people make the leap. I kind of understand that, and that's why I and Brian and my brother and you know, other people have argued so forcefully that more moderates need to come out and talk about this issue and say, look, like, there are almost certainly genetically influenced race differences, but it's not that big of a deal. It doesn't mean we have to turn into white nationalists.
0: Mm-hmm. You also say that Making the argument that equal treatment is contingent on believing people are identical in things like IQ is, is dangerous. Because if you can then show that there are some black-white IQ differences which are genetically based mm-hmm. or genetically influenced that will undermine the cause of equal treatment. So you're sort of effectively uh, creating a vulnerability in the kind of anti-racist platform, which doesn't need to be there.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think, I mean, I remember, I I understand, again, the concern. And I think that's part of the problem of building that, as you called it, vulnerability into the the edifice of anti-racism. Because... Then, when you're confronted with those data, they're more alarming than they need to be. You know, I remember when I was—I don't know when I was—when I first confronted the bell curve. A professor of mine had said, "You know, I think I was—I was probably parroting whatever I had heard from some very liberal class or another." And I said, "You know, isn't that a terrible book or whatever?" And one of my professors said, "No." And I read the book, and I found that it was. Rather judicious, but it was alarming to me because I had all of these beliefs about, well, that would inevitably mean that maybe we should treat groups differently, or other people will believe it means we should treat groups differently, and that's just totally unnecessary.
0: Someone defending the view that hereditarianism could lead to unequal treatment would Mm -hmm. say, for instance, that employers when doing a an initial sift amongst mm-hmm. a large group of applicants for a job that requires exceptional cognitive ability mm-hmm. might be behaving rationally if they were to include or have an out al- build an algorithm into their kind of sifting procedure Um, Mm -hmm. which gave preference to white applicants over black applicants. So so it could could lead to racial discrimination, which which might be rationally defensible mm -hmm. if it turns out that black-white IQ differences do have some genetic basis.
1: That problem arises whether the cause is genetic or not. Right, so... We know that there are there's a substantial gap on you know like high stakes testing, IQ tests, etc., SAT tests between blacks and whites right now. So even if you thought that the cause was entirely environmental, the scenario that you're forwarding would still be in play. Mm-hmm. Because employers could say, well, look, like we don't care about the cause of the difference, but there is a difference. And therefore, it's totally rational for us to build this into the, the algorithm that tells us which worker is likely to be the the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I guess I would say this is why having tasks that are, you know, uh, have uh, strong predictive validity, etc., are so important. Because the better the task, the less you have to rely on other variables.
0: More broadly, why do you... I mean, you yourself, you said you used to be in the camp of those progressives who thought that the edifice of anti-racism was critically dependent on believing things like race and IQ are social constructs. Did you think that... um, the edifice of anti-racism was contingent on believing that um, ability is distributed randomly across groups between races. Um, right. So no, I, I didn't,
1: but I was afraid that it would have pernicious consequences if it were disseminated. If, that, if people knew that, I thought it would be terrible.
0: Why did you think it would be terrible if um, equal treatment isn't contingent upon people being exactly equal? (laughs) I guess I thought that other
1: people wouldn't behave as rationally as elite professors who could talk about these things rationally. I know that's like embarrassing elitism, but that is what I thought at the time. And what's changed your mind about that? I think the thing that's most changed my mind is my concern that the conversation has been completely monopolized by extremists and that that's really what's deleterious and that if more moderate people talked about these things openly, not dogmatically, of course, said, look, there's room for debate. We don't know exactly, but this might be true, that it wouldn't seem as bad to people, that it would just, they would accept it in the same way that they accept that, say, Men and women have um, physical strength differences, and that doesn't have any or it need not have any del- deleterious consequences for society, right? I mean, it's just not that big of a deal. Um, so I think that was, plus, I mean, I guess I got to the point where I just thought, look, like the truth doesn't disappear because you ignore it, right? <laughs> the truth's going to be the truth you talk about it or not, and it's actually probably better to talk about it, because then you can deal with reality. If you don't know the truth, or if you ignore it, then you can't really get to the root causes
0: of certain disparities in society. Mm -hmm. Do you think amongst reasonable, progressive defenders of the anti-racism edifice, Mm -hmm. their reason for wanting to suppress scientific research on psychological racial differences is not because they believe equal treatment is actually logically contingent on people being equal, but because, like you used to, they think that most people won't respond rationally if scientists endorse the notion that there are genetically influenced psychological differences between races, um, and that it's a kind of snobbery or elitism that prompts them <laughs> to want to suppress scientific <laughs> research in this controversial area. Yeah,
1: I guess one could put it that way. I suspect I suspect that's right. Um, I, in fact, I, I know a lot of these people and I've talked to them and I will ask them, I will say, well, suppose that you just stipulate that we live in a universe in which differences are 100% genetic and they're enormous. Would that cause you to treat people differently? And they'll say, of course not. And then I'm like, well, why would that cause other people to? And yeah, there's probably, I guess the, the negative or the, the sort of cynical interpretation is, yeah, that's sort of superciliousness. I suppose the more charitable one is they're legitimately worried about how other people will respond, and maybe that's um, laudable. I mean, maybe maybe it is. Uh, I mean, they point, of course, to a, a long history of slavery, and they say, well, look, if you look at what slave owners said, they said, look, these people are inferior, and that's how they justified it. So I guess the charitable interpretation is they're expressing legitimate concern. mm mm-hmm. But yeah, you're right, there is perhaps some moral snobbery and like, well, of course, we're sophisticated enough to handle it, but the regular people
0: can't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's um, move on to another piece you wrote for Quillette, this one Mm -hmm. with your brother, but not with Brian Boutwell, which uh, was called um, Centrism. Um, Actually... Sorry, um, let, 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 let's go on to discuss um, The Preachers of the Great Awakening and then discuss centrism. That makes more sense because sure, we can yeah. st- we can then, we move to a, a pessimistic note, but then perhaps end on a positive one. You recently wrote a piece for Quillette called The Preachers of the Great Awakening um, in which mm-hmm. um, you talked about the explosion of social justice ideology. Um mm-hmm. began in the academy but seems to have... Reach now far beyond the academy and informs a lot of our public discourse. We saw that, for instance, over the recent uh, Ferrari over Brett Kavanaugh's nomination yep. to the Supreme Court. In your in your and your brother's piece, um, you, you you essentially assert that it's a kind of uh, it's comparable to the evangelical religious awakening of the early 19th century in Britain and its colonies, which was known as the Great Awakening, which is where your title comes from. And that a lot of woke ideology um, is actually comparable to um, a religious movement. And it's a way for elite whites um, both to signal their membership of the elite yeah you know, we we are expressing these views in part because it differentiates us from lower status whites who would never say these things because they're less educated and because they just wouldn't engage in say racial self-flagellation like we do um <laughs> right. uh, and in addition our being woke our being able to converse in this vocabulary and our concern for social justice unlike lower-class whites justifies our privileged, high-status position.
1: I think that's a a good summary. I would say on the second point, it's also what we were attempting to do is explain perhaps why what we call the preachers of this movement, you know, the uh, media mavens, pundits, professors get so much status. And what we said is basically what you said for the second part is they're the ones who are providing the legitimation narrative, right? They're saying, well, you know, these elite white, mostly white people, deserve their status because, indeed, they are morally righteous. And, in fact, the the masses, or hoi polloi, I guess, as we called them in the article, are bigoted and backward and, therefore, deserve not to have status. In fact,
0: they deserve derision and obloquy. Mm-hmm. Let's assume that um, that analysis is correct. What you left out of, or at least what you didn't cover in a great deal of detail in your piece, was why there has been this explosion in the last few years. Evangelical movements um, uh, sometimes seem to move to the beat of their own drum. They don't have obvious Causes and you know they spread almost like they they seem to follow a kind of viral pattern, um, mm-hmm. uh, which is sometimes quite quite it's quite hard to discern what the causes of it are or whether it's just kind of uh, weirdly kind of self generating and just organically explosive without yeah. there being any obvious cause. Do you have any theories about um, about why this um, this particular welter slang has? Uh, becomes so ubiquitous, particularly amongst the kind of uh, educated bourgeoisie in the West in the past, really in the past decade, but but it really seems to have exploded in the past five years or so. I don't have like a, a well thought out system of hypotheses
1: about this, but I do have some crude thoughts. So one thought is and this is in accordance with data collected and forwarded by Engelhardt, uh, Ronald Engelhart, Christian Wellesel, and some other people, is as you become more affluent as a society, values tend to move from survival to self-expression. And so I imagine what happens is people start competing more with identity than with income. And as you compete more with identity, you have to find signals that work in your current environment to be charitable to people in the woke system. I do think there's also a legitimate concern about people who are uh, who have been treated unfairly across history. And that concern does play a bit of a role in this system. And so you get affluence, um, self-expression concerns, real concern about people who have been treated unfairly and you combine them and that probably makes a woke system
0: more likely. Do you think then one of the reasons wokeness is more widespread now than it was 10 years ago is because unfairness has increased over the past 10 years? (laughs) No, absolutely not. So why it's more
1: popular um, now than it was 10 years ago, I don't have a good hypothesis about that. And no, I think society is probably more fair than it's ever been in human history. Perhaps the very fairness, in some sense, is like a fuel for this fire. Like the more fair it becomes, the more you have to look for the most minor slights and perhaps even the better your commitment signal because you know anybody can commit by saying i really care about this obvious conspicuous injustice but if you're saying gerber baby food is sexist like you're really dedicated to the cause
0: (laughs) yes i mean I, i like that element of your hypothesis because one of the mystifying things about wokeness um at least to me but I'm sure to many other people too, is the what appeared to me to be the transparent absurdity mm-hmm. of some of the key shibboleths of that <laughs> yes. whole outlook. But in your, in your piece, you make the point that the more outlandish and unevidenced the woke beliefs, the better they serve as instruments for signaling your membership of the woke erotic. Do you want to just flesh that out a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I don't know where the idea originally came from, but I, I read about this um, as it relates to religious belief. And so people, researchers argued that the more absurd the religious belief, the more powerful the signal that you're committed to the group because in some sense you're you're communicating to the group I'm I'm willing to completely uh, completely to subordinate my reason to the group, right? To give up critical thinking and, in, in some ways, to make myself look absurd to people who are on the outside of our group. And I'm willing to do that to show that I'm committed to you guys. Uh, it reminds me of the theologian, Tertullian. He was an early Christian. He said "I something such as, I believe because it's absurd. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which I think summarizes this quite well. So it it's a um, it's a commitment display. And then you can see this... With people in the woke system, so yeah, as you said, a, a lot of the fundamental pieties that they they mouth are transparently risible if you're on the outside of the system. Now, here's one question I have, and I, I'm curious as to what you think about this. Do you think that the people who do this believe it themselves? So. Yeah how many of them have actually, like, believe it because they're in the system, and how many of them just mouth it kind of cynically, knowing that it will get them
0: status? I think that it's not quite an either-or question. Yeah, that's Um, right. That it's usually some kind of combination. Mm -hmm. But um, the status-enhancing effect of professing these beliefs is something that conceals itself from the conscious mind. Because if it it was too obvious to the person, then they wouldn't be able to express those beliefs uh, with quite the same conviction and sincerity. I think it's quite hard to fake sincerity. And I also think that um, the human mind finds finds it very difficult psychologically to be openly hypocritical. So I'll give you an example, Bo, which is um, there is um, a, an Anglican primary school, so what you'd call an elementary school, near <laughs> where I live. And there are a number of parents at that school um, who manage to secure their children places by attending church uh, without actually being pious Christians. And this is a common phenomenon in um, England, where there are what you would call public schools, but which are also faith-based, which I know you don't have in America. Uh, whereby, if you if, if you want to be if you want your child to be admitted, you have a higher chance of getting your child admitted if you if you are a member of the faith in question, mm-hmm. and they're often good schools or better than average schools. So, um, sharp mm-hmm. elbow, middle-class parents. Um, will move mountains to try and get their children into these schools. Um, uh, We call it on your knees to avoid the fees. (laughs) And one of the interesting characteristics of the parents uh, who engage in what to begin with is a nakedly hypocritical process Mm -hmm. is that within a few months, they have begun to believe the... Christian faith that they initially only start by professing to believe in. (laughs) Um, And it's not because, you know, the Church of England has over the years honed these brainwashing and indoctrination techniques. And it's not because apostates are shamed or anything like that. In fact, I mean, uh, you know, uh, they're hopeless for the most part. Uh, I mean, the church couldn't be milder (laughs) and more liberal and sort of more inclusive. So there's nothing... The the reason these parents uh, eventually come to believe what it is they only start by saying in order to get their child into the school in question um, is because the human mind finds it very difficult, I think, to be openly hypocritical. So I think that um, even though it may be that some members of the wokerati are motivated by the desire to um, enhance their status or to signal their membership of a high-status group. They, even if they start out realising that, they quickly conceal that from themselves and yeah. end up being, being quite sincere about it. I mean, there must be some cynics out there, I'm sure, particularly amongst the professoriate. Um, and their behavior would tend to indicate that they are just flagrantly hypocritical. Um, So the
1: question uh, is, like, is the the cynical person worse or is the true believer? Because at least the cynical person, if you change the incentive structure, will change his or her beliefs. The true believer might be too far gone at that point.
0: (laughs) Well, I think it's interesting. What would be more dangerous, a majority of the people professing Wokeness are doing it for cynical reasons, or a majority are sincere. And on the face of it, you know, what you just said would appear to be right. That one would hope that enough of them are cynical that if you change the incentives, uh, they will start to behave more reasonably. <laughs> um, but one of the interesting characteristics of evangelical movements, which I only learned about uh, recently, is that evangelical churches have a very high churn rate. So okay. these uh-huh. churches are great at recruiting, but not that great at retaining. And that may be a characteristic of evangelical movements in general, which is why they <laughs> tend to spring up so quickly, but also fade so quickly. Right. Uh, so, it, so it could be if you're right and wokeness is, in essence, an evangelical phenomenon comparable to other evangelical movements that have swept the developed world in the past... Uh, then it will fade as quickly as it sprung up.
1: Now, does it? It does not
0: seem to be fading to me, and that's what disturbs me. <laughs> no, that's true. It certainly doesn't. One factor may be that the success of Donald Trump uh, in two thousand and sixteen, yeah. but also the success of Brexit um, yes. in the UK and mm-hmm. of right-wing populist movements in other parts of Europe, like. Italy, Austria, Hungary, Poland, um, that they have, in a sense, empowered the regressive left at the expense yes. of the moderate left. So in the past, the regressive left have kind of said that uh, Western capitalism will inevitably degenerate into kind of racist fueled ethno-nationalist movements. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in a sense, what's happened seems to have seems to have confirmed their kind of dire pessimistic prognosis. This seems like yes. the ap- apotheosis of um, uh, Western capitalism. And in addition, now that we are fighting fascism again, uh, right. we have to put these differences aside and, and we have to silence the more moderate, reasonable voices in our movement. Uh, because they will only empower the extremists on the other side. You have to fight fire with fire. The worrying thing is that as you see, as as ethno-nationalist movements begin to win political victories in democratic societies, um, uh, so they um, have this polarising effect on their opponents on the left, who in turn become equally extremist and that in turn produces a corresponding effect on their right-wing populist opponents and they kind of uh, mutually drive one another to further and further extremes and it seems to be an unstable constantly deteriorating form of equilibrium Uh, and so so, so it's hard to see how it can end other than in some kind of catastrophic uh, political explosion. Um,
1: uh, so I'm hoping that we avoid the cat-
0: catastrophic explosion. But, it, yeah, people who think that the, the, the culture war will inevitably degenerate into some kind of civil war and see kind of uh, elements yes. of that in things like the fight over Brett Kavanaugh's nomination. Yeah,
1: yes.
0: and it'll eventually spill out into um, public disorder. Yeah. So now we can get onto the the centrist manifesto: how to detoxify. Contemporary political debate I've become Disgruntled with both Parties for a
1: while and I Started really trying to Think about how I feel About politics and my level Of uncertainty about Which policies are the best And how to put together um, I guess an Epistemologically humble um, Compromise If you will and I guess that's that's what I came up with. Um I'm I'm not claiming any originality here, of course. There are plenty of centrists, um but it it struck me that and now a lot of people have said the same thing, so again I'm not claiming anything original, but it struck me that now perhaps more than Ever is a good time to forward a centrist plan and talk about moderatism, etc. Given the extremism that seems to be ripping
0: many of the countries of Western civilization apart, how you describe what you call centrism in mm. in that manifesto, a consistent philosophical system that attempts to guide political and cultural systems through change without paroxysms of revolution and violence. The centrist believes that political and cultural progress is best achieved by caution, temperance, and compromise, not extremism, radicalism, or violence. Now, to me, that sounds a lot like conservatism. <laughs> um, that was one one
1: complaint or one point that a lot of people made was it basically sounds like
0: secular Burkeanism. Yes, and 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 you say in your piece it differs from conservatism in two respects. Um, First of all, it doesn't abhor change to the extent that uh, most conservatives do. And secondly, um, it doesn't uh, accept that there is a transcendental moral order, which certainly many of the leading Uh, philosophers that we associate with conservatism, like Edmund Burke and uh, 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 T.S. Eliot and so forth, um, uh, do believe.
1: Yeah. The abhor change charge is probably unfair. So Edmund Burke, for example, who is a great influence of mine, certainly thought that, I mean, he was a Whig, right? I mean, he thought that you should change, but that you should change moderately. Right slowly judiciously yes.
0: yeah yeah okay so the second point i mean i think the second point um the second point seems to have more purchase i'm i'm very sympathetic to this manifesto but my difficulty is that it's a bit it's not quite full-blooded enough it doesn't have enough red meat to command the tribal loyalties of I a large, a large enough group of people to. I think exactly
1: right. Yes.
0: And one of the reasons it doesn't is because you are rejecting the notion of a transcendental moral order on which yes. to base it. Um, yes. And in the past, political or moderate, uh, liberal political outlooks linked to a kind of reasonable Christianity endured. And seem to serve the purpose you want centrism to serve, which was as a kind of rational enlightenment or part enlightenment counterweight to these mm-hmm. counter enlightenment movements. Mm-hmm. But I'm 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 skeptical that something as rational and rooted in the values of the Enlightenment as you're proposing, mm-hmm. um, without a kind of red blooded moral dimension, which seems to be, which at least appeals to. Something out there in the universe, perhaps not as as highfalutin as a supernatural being, but some conception of moral realism, some defense right. of our moral intuitions, which this marries mm-hmm. up with which uh, which doesn't just root them in the kind of arbitrary nature of our evolutionary development right that that, that without that it's not going to be able to serve this 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 purpose you wanted to serve
1: yeah, so I wonder if one can make a distinction from sort of the intellectual uh, component of a movement and the the less intellectual, more popular component, right? So mm. um, t- take conservatism, for example. I mean, very few people who would call themselves conservative, you know, care at all about T.S. Eliot's musings, right? They are probably just sort of intuitively attracted to nationalism, etc. So I think there's a distinction between this the intellectual justification and the more popular appeal of a particular political ideology. And in some sense, actually, I guess centrism is like an (laughs) anti-ideology, you know. So I think you're right, though. I think one of the great challenges of centrism in general is that it's not... It's just not appealing the way that a more, uh, I don't want to say extreme because that might be unfair, but a more systematic ideology is. Mm -hmm. And I've thought about that a lot. I thought, like, you know, it's interesting. I would consider, say, Steven Pinker, you know, a paradigmatic centrist. Mm Mm-hmm. You look at Steven Pinker, and he gets excoriated by both the left and the right. The left excoriates him because they just see him as this sort of technocratic neoliberal, and the right excoriates him because he rejects religious, you know, religious ideology and criticizes sort of this the pieties of of uh, more superstitious conservatives. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you might be right though if you, if you came to me and you said, look, like. I agree with the the mission of centrism, but I think it requires this kind of moderate um, religious belief or appeal to natural rights, these sort of metaphysical moral realism. I would say, great, let's do it.
0: Okay. I suppose there's sort of, um, I suppose it would be helpful to, to separate concerns about the likely political fate of this credo. And more philosophical concerns about what it's rooted in. So Mm -hmm. in order to believe that public policy should be informed by evidence and reason and that we ought as far as possible in politics to be guided by the values of the Enlightenment, you have to have first, don't you, agreed on various shared political goals Mm -hmm. Uh, Before you can then appeal to uh, reason and science as to the best way of achieving those goals. But reason and science, the values of the Enlightenment, are not going to help you select those goals. And that's in part why we've seen the values of the Enlightenment married to many uh, totalitarian uh, political projects from the Mm -hmm. French Revolution to Soviet communism. Um, They can't actually... Help us when it comes to selecting the right goals. That has to be ultimately a normative choice, and no is can help us reach that. Yeah,
1: point. I wonder. I wonder if. I, I mean, I I do agree. I I think there there has to be sort of like a a pre-commitment to certain goals. I'm. I'm basically a utilitarian with like a small U. So I think, I think the, the, say the French Revolution actually was a repudiation of enlightenment values in many ways, because if you were approaching social policy scientifically, right, you would have to take into account human nature and human well-being, and you would find that what the revolutionaries were attempting to do conflicted with human nature and human flourishing. And the same thing would hold for, say, Soviet communism. Right, so so if you're committed to an actual scientific approach to social policy, and then you're committed to human flourishing in some way, shape, or form, which I think most of us are, then Soviet communism is a catastrophic failure.
0: Mm-hmm the person who's skeptical about centrism would say if we if we accept the constraints of human nature and believe mm-hmm. that that human nature does place constraints on what is politically achievable yeah that may uh, it may at best limit what options um are available to us if we're going to observe those constraints but it won't actually help us choose between, say, Scandinavian social democracy and the Singapore free market evangelism.
1: Sure. I don't want to say it's not empirical, but, I mean, it's not empirical right now. Like, we can't test it, and to some degree it is a matter of of what values you care about. I think everyone cares about uh, human flourishing and well-being, so I would just say, well, look, if, if... If Scandinavian-style social democracy would work better in the United States than the current system we have, I would favor moving towards that slowly. If it wouldn't, then I wouldn't. I don't have any peculiar attachment to any particular social arrangement.
0: Aren't you assuming a bit too much um, universality there? It might be that roughly half the population... Mm -hmm. Um, cares more about community and Mm -hmm. fraternity than they do about liberty, being able to pursue their own good in their own way. And the other half cares more about the second than the former. Right. And ultimately, politicians have to make a choice. Uh, And it's quite difficult in some cases to uh, chart a path between those two groups so it might be yeah. that, that uh, even though where we fall on that spectrum is heavily genetically influenced mm-hmm. there isn't enough about our natures which, which is universal, universally shared yeah. in order to help us resolve these political um, dilemmas which yeah. ultimately have to be informed by values and science and reason can't help
1: Well, that's, I I mean, I think, I I don't know about the second point. Let me take the first point. I think that's absolutely crucial point, and it's something that I've been thinking a lot about, so I'm glad that you raised it. Um, I know other people have talked about this, of course, but I don't think it gets discussed enough, which is that the, the social system that best, you know, most benefits people with 120 iqs and self-control that's probably not the same social system that would most benefit people with 90 iqs or as i mean you could put it in different values some people value like the community they were born and raised in more and some people value being a cosmopolitan world traveler Mm -hmm. and that really is a fundamental you know a dilemma there are just you have these conflicting Attachments. Now, the second part of that, and if you want to talk more about the first, I'd be happy to, but the second part where you said the values, I still think this can be adjudicated empirically. Okay, so there are, there are certain people for whom social libertarianism, let's say, doesn't work very well. And how do we know it doesn't work very well? Well, because we can measure their well-being, we can look at the opioid epidemic, other such things that are perfectly empirically measurable, right? So I don't think it has to be like uh, an a-empirical value that we're talking about. We're actually still talking about human well-being, and we can measure this. It just turns out that what best promotes well-being in a certain group of people maybe doesn't in another group
0: don't we have to decide which group's well-being we want to prioritize? um, And can science and reason alone help us resolve that issue?
1: Yeah, yeah. And there I just, I agreed with you. And I, I also, this is a point that I want to make about centrism, which is centrism, to me, this is why compromise is so important. Because you live in a country with a lot of different people who have, conflicting interests. And the only way to maintain cultural cohesion is to be willing to compromise some of your own group's interests so that another group can thrive as well. And this is something I get so much flack for, and people are constantly criticizing well, would you compromise with somebody who wants to kill you by saying, well, fine, cut off my arm? And it's like, (laughs) no, I wouldn't. But I do think even if you think you're right or even if it would benefit your group, sometimes it's good to compromise.
0: One thing that occurred to me in that conversation, uh, well, what you just said was that you mentioned in the course of answering my last question, uh, David Goodhart's distinction between... uh, uh, anywheres and somewheres Mm -hmm. Um, and it tends to be the anywheres that are the woke and the somewheres who aren't. Yes. Um, Do you think one of the reasons for that is that their religious impulses and tribal loyalties aren't captured by a sense of place or a sense of patriotism or rootedness in local communities and neighborhoods. And so they're therefore uh, more susceptible to these kind of global intellectual evangelical movements than the somewheres for whom um, that part of their nature is kind of uh, rooted uh, uh, in where they are.
1: Mm-hmm. That's, I actually don't know, and I'd have to think about that, but that's an interesting hypothesis. Here's another one. Here's a thought. I kind of, this is sort of a conflict ideology theory, but I often look at ideologies as um, doctrines that claim that the group's traits should be valued by society, right? So, it's not surprising that the Anywheres claim that the traits that society should value are the traits that they happen to possess. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right, so their narrative is you somewheres are backward, rustics, you know, bigoted, pre basically pre-enlightenment, and we're cosmopolitans, society should value us, we're the best people, um, and it seems... Almost straightforwardly, just self-interest, doesn't it? Just hey, we're going to propagate a narrative that proclaims that our traits are the best traits in society and should be valued.
0: That may be what's really going on, but um, disguised by the various professions of self-loathing. So even though they are, for the I mean, for the most part, the wokeari. Um, mm-hmm. Are cishet white males, and yet um, they demonize cishet white males. Um, they denounce right. white privilege, so, male gender advantage, and so forth.
1: Right, so it's interesting, though, to think about how they denounce it. So, most, like, let's just take, like, a, a per, well, I don't want to call out any particular individual. But take uh, your average white male writer for, say, Vox. Mm-hmm. When he claims that cis white men are terrible, he's not talking about himself. He's not talking about his friends, right? He thinks that they're, you know, these very noble and righteous people who are calling attention to all of the sins that, I guess, his kind have of committed. So he's actually a good person. He's mm-hmm. talking about the rest of the cis white male population.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, do you think that seems to be the case? That may be what he's thinking in his head but often the condemnation of cishet white males in general is accompanied Mm. by a kind of personal confession of sin at the same time. Yeah, you're right. And that's one of the differentiators between them and, you know, lesser examples of their breed it's not It's not that they're not guilty of these sins, it's that they're aware of their guilt and they have renounced their sins.
1: Yeah, you know, it strikes me, uh, it's been a little bit since I've read Nietzsche's Genealogy of Morals, but, you know, it was something he was really interested in is this kind of self-flagellating asceticism. Like, what is it actually doing? And in some sense, the more you whip yourself and proclaim your sins and your guilt the more status you're calling for because you're saying you're look at how good i am i'm willing to do this in public and write this confession about how privileged i am
0: <laughs> I absolutely think that um uh, nietzsche's analysis of um the growth of Christianity has some yes. bearing on this. It was uh, oh, so.
1: I, that's the next article. I, I've been yeah. getting the notes together, but I'm, try, I'm trying to. Yeah, I'm trying to uh, put together an article that applies that analysis to the rise of woke
0: culture. Yeah, it's it, certainly that the veneration of the weak. Yes. regarding the weak as more morally yes. virtuous than the strong, exactly. who are pathological. Um, right. it's really uh, has its profound, roots in, yeah you know, Christianity.
1: Yeah, and it's a it's a really profound insight. And then it's also like, you know, part of me just, you have to hand it to these people's creativity, the way that they're able to redefine what's good and bad, and to say, well, yeah, you people have power, but that's actually because you're evil and corrupt. I, so I have some, you know, begrudging respect for that, I guess.
0: I sometimes think of social justice ideology as this kind of powerful cocktail of postmodernism and neo-Marxism, which Mm -hmm. um, these fiendishly clever left-wing intellectuals have been developing in a laboratory for (laughs) something like 30 years and chose the kind of perfect, (laughs) most opportune moment to release this virus into the general population. Uh-huh. Um, and got it exactly right, uh, which is why it's gone viral. Um, it's, but it's been 30 years in the making.
1: I mean, I, I will say, and I think like, it's really important to try to do this, to be charitable to people. So I will say, I do think like, there's an underlying... There's a real underlying concern. Now, I agree with you. Obviously, the the societies have become more and more fair, even since 2005. But I think there are people who are just legitimately concerned about our treatment of certain groups. And I, I do want to respect that. Even if I disagree with their empirical claims, I would like to meet them on those terms rather than say, well, you're just signaling,
0: so I'm going to ignore you. I agree. I mean, I think it's 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 easy to dismiss the moral dimension of um, woke self righteousness because you know a things have improved for women and minority groups um, over the past fifty years, and they're certainly way better off in the developed world than they are in the developing world, and Western capitalism has actually benefited disadvantaged people to a much, much greater extent than yes. the alternatives have. Yeah. Um, so if you're, it's tempting to think, therefore, that if your real concern was to help people who are disadvantaged, you wouldn't be attacking the system, which has raised more people out of extreme poverty than socialism. Um, uh, And that what you're proposing would inevitably make things worse, and they wouldn't just make things worse for cishet white men, they'd also make things a lot worse for minorities and women in all likelihood as well, apart from a few favoured cliques. And there's also, I think another reason for scepticism is the one you point out in the Preachers of the Great Awakening, which is that if they really were concerned about... Uh, disadvantage, then they would be much more conscientious and forensic about analyzing the causes of disadvantage and unfairness mm-hmm. of various kinds, inequality of various kinds, instead of just having this kind of taking on faith that it just has this one cause, right. um, which which may be a factor, but certainly isn't the only cause. Uh, I would, but I, would but, but agree I agree that the, the fact, the fact that, that in spite of that, I think, of course, a lot of it is fueled by a sense of injustice, a sense that the world isn't fair and should be fairer.
1: Right. And, I I mean, you know, for example, one could apply this same analysis to, say, psychology, right? Um, You you could say, well, look, if if you guys really cared about getting to the truth, you would work together, you wouldn't make up so many theories, you would just work on one and try to make it better, etc. And obviously the people, the reason individuals you know, do social psychology, is probably to obtain status. Now, part of it is they really do care about the truth, but a lot of it is they're trying to get status. What separates science from wokeness, let's say, the real thing that separates it is in science, the incentives are structured in such a way that you tend to move toward truth. Right, mm-hmm. so it's just that if you want status in science, a good way of getting it is by forwarding a theory that helps you explain something better than the next best theory mm-hmm. in the woke world that's not the case and and may I add just quickly because I think this one's important a third uh, a third thing that the the sort of woke culture undermines how it undermines its own explicit goals of helping people. If you really want to help what you perceive as victims group, what you would want to do is create a broad cultural consensus, and that would mean you don't call people out for using the wrong epithet, right? You don't alienate them by chastising them on Twitter. You don't call everybody who doesn't say the exact same things you would say racist or sexist, etc., because that actually minimizes your coalition it attenuates it but if you think about it from a signaling perspective that's exactly what you would expect you would expect that people would have these very strict rules and codes so that they could signal their you know culturally valued traits and they would therefore call out people who can't adhere to those sort
0: of rules Mm -hmm. yes Um, yeah good point listen Bo really good to talk to you um fascinating stuff and um, I, hope you'll, I hope you'll finish your piece on how the genealogy of morals applies <laughs> to the greater Awakening. Um, uh-huh. And uh, look forward to reading more of your stuff in Quillette. I, I just
1: want to say thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. I'd love to come on any other time, maybe after that article, after I finish it. Yeah, great.
0: If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette.